This morning we are continuing uh, a series that we started about four weeks ago called Word, beginning with the Bible. And the goal of this series is to see each and every one of us take just one more step in the direction of learning and loving and living out the Word of God. Because that's what followers of Jesus do. Disciples of Jesus are marked by a growing life lived out of obedience to his word. And we want to be a movement of people who love the word of God, cling to it, and live it out just a little bit more. So I don't know how much you loved the word or knew the word of God last year, but our prayer is that through this series you will love what God has to say to his people just a little bit more even through this series. Uh, This morning we are going to be in the longest chapter in the Bible. Anyone know which one that is? Psalm 119. Um, You do not need to go to how to study the Bible. You clearly know it very well. Psalm 119, longest chapter, uh, longest book in the Bible. Um, 176 verses. And it's, it's a really fascinating acrostic poem. Uh, it's 176 verses broken into 22 stanzas. Each of those stanzas are eight verses long. And each of those stanzas represents a letter of the Hebrew alphabet going in sequence. So the first eight verses are Aleph, the first letter in the Hebrew Bible. Um, in the Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet, which simply means those eight verses, each line starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then it goes on like that. We're going to be looking at stanza number two, Bet, which means each verse in this second section starts with a second letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That's not going to be of particular benefits to us today, but I thought it's a cool thing for you to know that the Bible is this beautiful, it's not random, it's this beautifully composed piece of literature. So, if you have a copy of the Bible, meet me in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. If you get to Psalm 120, you've gone a little bit too far. Um, 119, we're going to start reading at verse number 9. Psalm 119, verse 9. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, the verse um, will show up on the screen and um, will show up at the bottom of the screen if you're joining us online. But here's what it says. Psalm 119, verse 9. A question. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? First of all, we've got to agree that is a great question. Here's how we might ask that question um, with our New Testament spoiled perspective. How does a young person consistently live in a way that brings a smile to the Savior and satisfaction to the soul? How does a young person live consistently in a way that brings a smile to the Savior and satisfaction to the soul? Purity. Purity. It's this idea of when my life is lined up with 
its design. It's when my life is lived according to its design. My thoughts, my attitudes, my behavior aligns with God's heart and God's design. I don't know how many of you know that to live according to God's design is the certain way to bring a smile to the face of the Savior and bring satisfaction to your soul. Purity. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? So here's, here's the, the, the point. If you've ever had any interest in deep delight... Or soul satisfaction? This is a great question. If you have any interest in seeing the Savior smile over your life. This is a great question. If you have no interest in deep delight or the smile being brought to the Savior's face on account of your life. This question, by the way, is going to be of little interest to you. And so will the rest of this passage. But... But if you have any interest in Jesus delighting in you, this is such a great question. How does a young person stay on the path for which their soul was designed? How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Um, this is a great question. And by the way, it's a great question no matter your age. Some of you are like, I'm not a young person. So clearly this service is not for me. And I knew this church was for young people. No. Uh, this word can actually be translated servant. But regardless, when do you become too old to be concerned about the delight of your Savior and the deep satisfaction of your soul? When do you ever outgrow that? This is such a great question because I don't need to know you to know that you are never too young, never too old to be obsessed with the satisfaction of your soul. Matter of fact, everything you do, everything I do is a quest to find what I believe will bring about the deepest and most lasting sense of satisfaction. We are obsessed with delight. We are obsessed with satisfaction, which means we ought to kind of be obsessed with this question. And the psalmist is just asking, how do you live on that path of delight. How do you live in God's design? Now, we, we, we want to look at this question a little more carefully before we even attempt to answer it. Because I found this question so fascinating as I was looking at this section of scripture. But then I kept looking at the question and the question just kept revealing more and more clarity before it even attempted an answer. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Um, this fascinated me. Because did you know that purity is a path? 
I saw that in the question. Apparently, purity is a path, not, by the way, a place. Purity is a path, not a place. I read that in this question, and I'm telling you, some things got shook free in me. Living in a way that brings a smile to his face and satisfaction to my soul is a path. It's not a place. If it was a place, man, I just, I just had some worship parties all by myself realizing, wait a minute, that's, that's powerful because if it was a place, then it would make sense when I feel like a loser because I haven't arrived in this way. Or in that area. Turns out it's not a place actually. It's a path. If if it's a path then the question is not whether I'm perfectly pure as a person. The question is actually am I on the path called purity? question is not whether I've figured it out, which can sometimes be the crippling question in the church. Have I arrived? Have I figured it out? Now the question is whether or not I'm a person in process. It's not whether or not I've arrived at this place called purity. It's whether or not I'm on this journey called Purity, enjoying the satisfaction of living like I was designed to live is a path, not a place. I'm just telling you, if you ever feel like you've just never arrived at a place where life choices are, oh, Jesus is smiling on me. That's because it's not a place, it's a path. If you ever feel like you trip and you fall and you get a little dirty and banged up, bruised up, and you don't look like a pretty Christian all the time, that's because it's a path. It's not a place. If you ever look at somebody and think, ooh-wee, they've arrived, pray for them. <laughs> Do you know how exhausting it is to walk around acting like you've arrived at some place? They're tired from faking it. Pray for them. And also, by the way, pray for you. Because do you know how exhausting it is to keep comparing your process to somebody else's process? It's not a place you arrive. It's a path you continue to journey on. Some things got set free in me by re-looking at this question. You will mess up. You will trip. You will fall. You will stumble. The question is, how do you not get discouraged and derailed from the path? Because purity is not a place It's a path. I'm telling you, if you don't get that, when you mess up, you will feel like the whole thing is broken. I haven't arrived. As though it's some kind of a destination. 
But the most important thing, according to this question, is that you are on the journey walking along the path. He's not asking how do you arrive at a destination called purity. He's asking how do you continue to move along the path in the direction of purity. Because purity, y'all, is a path. Are you continuing in that direction? Removing things that do not make Jesus smile. Things that are not what you were designed for purity is a path the question also something stood out to me about the question itself before even answering it and not just the fact that purity is a path but it struck me that purity is a war yeah from the question that staying on this path Of delighting my savior and delighting my soul. It's a war. If you're not fighting, you're losing. You are veering into a different path. You are heading towards the cliff of discouragement and labor and striving and exhaustion. Purity is a war. We can see that again in the way the psalmist asked the question. I don't know if you noticed it. It stood out to me. Psalm 119 verse 9. He says, how can a young person or a servant stay on the path of purity? And I'm like, that's kind of negative, Mr. Psalmist. Like, why not ask the opposite question? Like how does a how does a person wander off the path of purity? Why not ask that question? Um because staying is the problem. Wandering is the propensity. Our hearts naturally want to wander. Hence the question. I don't know if you knew that. Every instinct in us is to resist God's design. And attempt to find delight apart from it. Our natural propensity is to wander off the path. Where God holds delight in our way. The natural setting of our hearts left by themselves is to fight God's design and flee in a different direction. Our part, our hearts are constantly trying to leave the path. You know what you need to do if you want milk to go bad? Right, nothing. Nothing. Just leave it there. It will go bad all by itself. 
That is the natural tendency of milk, at least the milk at my house. Maybe yours is different. The work is in keeping it from turning to nasty sour cream on your counter. I just thought I'd give you that before lunch. Your heart is like milk. It is prone to go bad all by itself. Purity is a war. Because your heart naturally resists. Your heart naturally rebels. Your heart naturally runs away from purity. Some of you may be skeptical about that. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's a lot of time. That's the Old Testament. Galatians chapter 5 verse 17. For the flesh, our natural propensity, desires what is contrary, opposite to the spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants what is contrary to the flesh. And by the way, he's not talking about unsaved people. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. This is crazy. If you've never heard this verse, you need to. The heart is deceitful above all things. And beyond cure, who can understand it? Our hearts continually try to run from purity, continually are bent to run away from God's design for our lives. And they will lie to us the whole time because the heart is deceptive above all things. Lying to us, convincing us that as we run away from God's design, we are actually moving towards what will ultimately bring us the deepest delight. And the heart is lying. It is wired to run away from God, to veer away from God's design. I'm telling you, your heart is crazier and more dangerous than you knew. I'm sorry that we're stuck with those suckers. I'm t- naturally, let's just, we'll talk about this. We're here, right? Naturally, your heart will hold a grudge. And it will tell you it's okay because of what she did. That's a lie. But the heart is deceptive above all things. Naturally, your heart will fuel sexual fantasy and tell you, well, it's just in your mind. It was just on a screen. Lies. But left to itself, that's the direction our hearts will go. Naturally, your heart will self-soothe with food. Why mourn when you can eat your feelings? Naturally, your heart will compete with people you're called to help. 
and they will feel like a threat to you. Naturally, I'm sorry to be telling you this at church, but you cannot trust your heart. That's what I came to tell you. You cannot trust your heart. It's a crazy, wandering liar bent on pulling you away from God's design. You can't trust it. Just assume your heart is trying to deceive you on account of the fact that your heart is deceptive above all things. You cannot give your heart the benefit of the doubt unless, unless nothing. Don't do it. You can't do it. That was a test. So, um, this thing that we say, there's some things we've just got to purge from our vocabulary. Things we'll say like, you know, um, just go with your heart. Uh, That may be cute for movie theaters. It is catastrophic for theology and life. Don't just go with your heart ever. Your heart is crazy. Yeah, I'm going to drive this home. Just just trust your heart. Except no. Your heart is a liar. It's deceptive and it cannot be trusted. Just saying. I I feel it in my heart. Your heart doesn't care about your feelings, first of all. Oh, we'll say stuff like this, like, well, I'm I'm an intuitive person. Um, Really, I, I, I trust my instinct about people. Stop it. Because your heart's crazy. But you know, sometimes you've got to trust your gut about people. Um, Did you know that your gut is usually interested in one of two things? Pleasure or protection. Occasionally self-promotion. But that's just because it brings you pleasure. Or protects you from something. I don't know if you knew that. But that's what your heart is bent on. So that person strikes you as someone who can, you know, make your life a little happier than it is right now. You know, I trust my gut about people. That person strikes me that way. Um, But yeah, your agenda is, can this person maybe bring me a little more pleasure than my life presently has? Or that person strikes you as, you know, my gut about people. You know, that guy he strikes me as somebody who can maybe, you know, hurt me. Because it reminds me of somebody who hurt me one time. So I'm going to build walls to protect myself from being hurt by people. And it may actually work. That my gut about people, I actually gain some pleasure from people. Or it may work that I actually protect myself from being hurt by people. And heaven is looking at my life and asking, since when did protecting yourself become the goal? Since when did pleasure from people become the goal? And before long, I have demoted the chief virtue of the kingdom, which is loving people. Because I go with my gut, which either protects me from people or... Seize them as a means to pleasure. Your heart is crazy. So you may have a few less hurts in your relationships. But you have 
grown this hardness around you because your gut, you know, you, you know how to read people and whatnot. And your heart won't tell you that you were designed for community, not to walk alone. It's amazing how much I brag about this, about keeping people out. Because I've been hurt, and so I don't trust people easily. So I've developed walls and, and systems, and I trust my intuition, my instinct, my gut. Until before long, um, I'm the same person who's hyperventilating over my own loneliness. Because I went with my gut, my heart. Always say stuff like, it's my nature. Oh, I was born this way. It's just the way I am. Maybe, but you were naturally crazy. So don't go with that. Where were we? Purity is a war, y'all. Which is why the psalmist asks the question, how do you keep your crazy heart on the path it was designed for? Because everything in it will constantly be pulling off course all the time. All the time. If you leave it to itself, trust me, if you are not fighting, you are wandering. If you are not fighting, you are veering. I don't know what your relationship with your heart is, but I just came to introduce a little tension and a little suspicion between the two of you. Because your heart is crazy. He asks this question on purpose. How do you stay on the path? Because everything in you is going to be bent to wander off. You have to know that. Otherwise, you will live your life casually instead of in war mode against a propensity that is prone to wander. This is a great question. Because we all long for delight. (laughs) And yet we are all prone to derail. Great question. How? The psalmist tells us. And he gives us such a church answer that you're going to roll your eyes in your heart. I don't care. Your heart's crazy. I don't care what your heart thinks. He says in the second part of this verse, by living according to your word. Now, in case you missed it, we are in the middle of a series about the word of God. Learning, loving, and living according to his word. And I cannot say this enough, y'all. This isn't just a cool series. What's the next fun series we can do at church? Though I think it's pretty cool. This series matters. Um, according to this passage, the word of God has the power to tame your crazy, lying, wayward, wandering heart. The word of God. It has the power to keep Your heart 
from wandering away from the delight of Jesus and the delight of your soul. The word of God. How do you win the war to keep living in a way that brings a smile to the Savior and satisfaction to your soul? He says the word of God. Purity is a war that is waged and won by the word of God. I know I can't base my choices on what my heart feels. So I must determine that my choices must be based on something else. And the psalmist says, I'll tell you what. Base your life's choices, not on your gut, not on your intuition, not on your experiences, not on your education, but on what the word of God says. That's what he means when he says by living according to, by living from the place of, by living in light of your word. It's this idea that I make and I measure my decisions based on what this book says. Living according to your word. I'm not going with what I feel anymore. Because my feelings are crazy. I'm going with what this book says, regardless of how I might feel about it. Living according to your word. It's not going with my gut. It is going according to the word of God. Again, my gut is interested in self-preservation, self-promotion, pleasure. It's not actually interested in what I was ultimately designed for. It's interested in freedom and independence and doing my own thing. So I'm not going with that. But I'm living according to your word. It's not following my impulse. It's choosing according to the word of God. Again, once I understand my natural impulses, wirings... My prayer is that we would break up with this obsession with going with our feelings, going with our gut, going with our instincts. And instead, living according to his words. Not going with popular Pinterest opinion. Because, by the way, um, popular Pinterest opinion is... It's just telling you what a bunch of other crazy, lying, deceitful hearts think is a good idea. And some of it may be cute, (laughs) but it is useless for bringing delight to his face and to your soul. It may be fine for getting some likes and a couple of compliments when people walk into your house. We win the war, stay on the path of purity. When what the Bible says becomes our measure. Hmm. This struck me. 
this means whenever I choose not to hang out in the pages of this book, I am choosing to trust, to take my chances with my crazy, deceitful heart. I am constantly going to be choosing. I'm living according to his word or I'm living according to something else. And when I choose not to hang out in these pages, I am making a choice. I'm taking my chances with my heart. The very thing that's determined to derail me. Which for me might explain why I'm constantly in these spirals of discouragement. I'm choosing to believe that, you know, my heart will behave itself maybe this one time and lead me to places of joy and purpose and security. If I'm not spending time in this book, I can't live according to his word. And if I don't live according to his word, I am giving myself over To the forces that long to derail me from delight. That derail me from bringing a smile to his face by the way that I live. I just wonder. Are you hanging out in the word of God? There is a way to stay on the path of delight. And it's by hanging out in the pages of this book. Do you keep coming back to the word of God as the measure for your choices? As the way you measure how your life is go come on let's be honest i measure how my life is going based on how i feel when i wake up or how i feel when i go to sleep and if i can honestly tell you what typically informs my feelings it's what people thought about me or what somebody said on a post about me or how my kids felt i was doing as a parent which is a crazy way to to measure your feelings I'm asking you, is this how you measure? I know I feel so discouraged right now. That may not be an indication that you are not moving towards delight. It may be an indication that you are alone on a path in a context where a bunch of other people have just abandoned the path. The question is, what does the word of God say about the choices that I'm making? What does the word of God say about this Life I'm living, this journey that I am on. I wonder, do you keep coming back to this as a measure? And I'm thinking about pursuing a relationship. I know how I feel about it. Because, ooh, he cute. But I can't trust my feelings. Can we just be honest? 
Some of you have stories to tell about how many relationships you've got in that were super jacked. But they felt awesome when they started. And then it's like, okay, now I'm learning to trust my gut a little more. We'll actually do that. Like I've gained enough intel from my other 12 relationships that I feel like number 13 is the lucky one. Don't trust your feelings on this. Man, some of my coworkers are not my favorite people in the world. So my gut tells me to just avoid them. But the word of God, though, how are you measuring your choices? Man, when a tense um, issue comes up with my kids, uh, and we start to talk to them, (laughs) they'll sometimes tell us, let me guess. You're going to tell us something that the Bible says. The Bible says this, and the Bible says that. And like, yeah, we're jerks like that. Um, because those are the kinds of parents we want to be. Sometimes. Um, oftentimes, I throw my Bible at my children. Or out the window when I'm tired and the kids have jumped all up on my last nerve. And I start making decisions as a parent based on my disappointments, based on my frustration. And can I be honest? There have been times when I've even made disciplinary choices about my kids because I'm mad at something that they did. That is not living according to his word. Am I disciplining them? Am I... I, I, Parenting them according to his word, not according to my disappointment, not according to the fact that they didn't do what I said. No, according to his word. Do you have a sense of what the word of God requires of you as a business person? I know you're successful and and you have 17 MBAs and all of that, but... Do you know what his word says to you in that context? I know what he did was wrong. But are you forgiving or treating that person according to their crimes? According to your feelings? Or according to his word? See, we can read a verse like this and be like, yeah, live according to his word. Let's move on. But the question is, is that really how we are measuring the choices we are making in our lives. Are you treating your aging parents according to his word? Or are you treating them according to convenience? Are you treating them according to, to, to reaching your work goals? And that's now just a little bit of a nuisance. How are you making those decisions? According to his word. If you're not hanging out in this book, you are going to gravitate back to your heart driving your decisions and your heart is a crazy driver always bent on going off course while telling you two miles from the destination your answer to these questions 
will tell you, are you staying on this path called purity? Are you waging and winning the war on delight? Are you moving in the direction where your life is locked in and and synced up with his design for you? You cannot guess that. You cannot intuit that. That has to be a movement of people who are growing more and more obsessed with what he has to say to us, what he has to say over us, what he has to say about us, about everything that we do. If you're like me, there are areas of my life which is like, your word of God can speak into that. And then the areas of my life which is like, no, these ones are for me. I think I have enough accumulated intelligence to not have to live according to the word of God on that. And can I tell you, by the way, that is a space the enemy is looking for. The place where you've declared independence from the word of God. A place where you are not speaking God's word over your life. A place where the word of God has been relegated to a if a crisis occurs. We've got to be people who stay in this book. Man, I hear that and my immediate response is, okay. I'm going to try harder and I'm going to do better and get in God's word more. And while that may be true, fair, good and all, I once again found the psalmist's next words so freeing as we wrap this up. Look at his response. Verse 10. I seek you with my crazy heart, all of it. Do not let me stray from your commands. That was so freeing to me. Because somebody needs to know purity is a plea. It's a plea. This is so powerful. I resolve to bring my wayward heart to you and beg you. Please don't let me get too far from this book. Spirit of the living God Keep me close to this book. Please don't let me stray. I know left to myself. Moment by moment I will be prone to wonder. I am begging you tether me to this book. That's the psalmist response is to beg God. Keep me here because I am going to want to run. I can imagine him awakening with that plea. Please keep me in your word. Everything in me is going to get back to being busy and needing to check off my to-do list. Please don't let me keep me close to your word. Everything in me is going to want to get back to figuring things out because I'm a super competent person. I'm a type A personality. Please. Don't let me stray from your word. Purity is a plea. Purity is a movement of people who understand the role of the spirit of God 
to draw us back to the places of his design, the places of delight. Purity is understanding it's not so much based in my strength and my resolve and my resilience. It's based in a power that is greater than me, that's available to me and begging him, please. Tame my heart, impose your power on my will, and keep me in your word. Left to myself, I'm going to keep trying to clean myself up every time I feel like I haven't arrived. Instead of clinging to the word when I mess up, which reminds me, if you confess he is faithful and just, he will forgive you right now. Oh, there is no condemnation for you, Kondo, even right now. Please keep me coming back to your word. I cannot do this by just deciding and resolving to be a better follower. Help me to stay in this book. Come on, church. We have got to be a people that are constantly pleading with the spirit of God. Draw me back. Bring me back. And then bring this word to life before my eyes and in my heart. Bring me back. I love what the psalmist does. Just when you think he's going to start preaching effort and striving and trying and being better, he goes immediately to a plea. I love that. And by the way, isn't that true about the life of a follower of Jesus? The war is not won by striving. The war is always won by pleading, declaring, claiming, asking for something greater. Than we have in and of ourselves. Help me stay in this book. I wonder if you need to make that a regular prayer. And then he ends with this resolution. Because it's not just, well, then I'm just going to pray and not do anything. No, we pray and then we walk in the power that he Gives Verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Because purity is not just a plea, purity is a practice. Purity is a practice. I pray and then I practice and then I pray and then I practice and then I pray and then I practice. Understanding that my practice must be fueled by my prayer and the power that I receive fuels my practice. So I practice and I pray and I pray and I practice. God, don't let me get far from this book. And then I work to feed my wayward heart. Sometimes I feel like it's force feeding my heart, the word of God. With the only food That can tame my heart. So I feed my heart his word. That takes practice. That takes practice. That's why I can't tell you enough. Um, Read the Bible even when you don't feel like it. In fact, read the Bible especially when you don't feel like it. One of the things I think that derails us as a church is like, well, man, I'm just not, in, I'm, not, I'm not feeling it right now. That's because your heart's crazy. Don't go with that. Force feed your heart the only food that has the power to tame it. He says, I've hidden your word in my heart. I love that picture. Don't decide I'll read when I'm into it. Um, now, practice 
coming back to the word of God. Pray and practice and pray and practice. Doesn't have to be pretty. I think some of us do that. Like we want an Instagram picture of our Bible study situation. Like I had my this over here and then symmetrically my coffee. Um, and then over here it's some worship music playing like on three because four feels like it. No. And it was on three. And then that was the per. No, sometimes it's just messy. Sunday in the beginning, God, there you go. Eat that heart. I don't know. But there is a practice. There's a vigilance to reading the word of God. And it's not always the prettiest thing in the world. But before you know it, you find yourself saying things that you did not think would ever come from your heart. You never thought that would come from your natural heart. Something you hid in your heart snuck out. And you're like, what was that? That wasn't me. I have hidden your word in my heart. And your word is starting to tame my heart. And by the way, if you're in a moment with somebody and something emerged from your heart and it was the word of God, don't start taking too much credit for it. Thank him. Thank you for the work your word is doing in my... I don't know where that came from. I just quoted scripture to my children. When I was mad, that's the Lord. I have hidden your word in my heart. Eventually... As I practice and pray and practice and pray, I find myself living out what was hidden in my heart. Not what I feel, not what I felt, but what I hid. That's why we've got to stay vigilant. It's a war, y'all. We've got to stay vigilant in the word of God. And we find ourselves, all of a sudden, people of the word. And I want things that I don't naturally tend to want. And I'm looking and treating my coworkers in ways that I naturally don't think to treat. Something is happening to me. The word of God is taming your heart. As you continue to hide his word in that space. I don't know where you are, your relationship with the word of God. I don't know your pleas with God about his word. I don't know how much you are measuring your life based on what you feel or what somebody did to you or what somebody said to you or what your bank account says. That is not the ultimate measure. Spirit of the living God, bring us back to measuring our lives according to your word and continue to bring us back To your word. Because our hearts are going to be prone to. Wander. I don't know what the spirit may be stirring in you. Regarding his word. But I know he's awakening a movement of people. Who are coming back to his word. It's not what the politicians said. It's what his word said. It's not what I feel or believe about myself. Because of what happened to me. It's what his word has declared over me. I want to keep coming back to this place. Spirit wrestle our hearts. Back to your word and i'm going to close us in in prayer i don't know if there are any elders in the room um i think i saw a couple man if you guys would be willing to come up front um just want to invite anybody if the spirit is stirring something and you just maybe want to draw a line in the sand and say this is my declaration i've lived too long on a wound 
inflicted on me or too long based on something spoken over me or too long based on my gut, my instincts. And I want to declare from this moment forward, spirit of the living God, I'm asking you, bring me back to your word. Bring me back to your word. I don't know what he may be doing in you, but here's what I am begging of you. If he is stirring something in you, do not just get up out of this room or up off of your couch and just move on. Respond, meet him in that place. Meet him on that path to delight. Who cares what anyone thinks? If he's stirring something, I would invite you, man, respond to it. So even as I pray, if elders would be willing to come on up and, um, I also know, man, there's a couple of prayer teams here in the room. If you want to come on up and pray with people, please feel free to do that. But I'm going to say a word of uh, prayer. Father, thank you so much for your invitation for us to experience and enjoy delight for our souls. Thank you even more so for the invitation for our lives to be a delight to the person of Jesus. We want that. And if that's going to be true, we've got to be a people of your word. We are not naturally going to want that. We're not naturally going to do that. So spirit, even now, I pray that you would stir our fresh hunger for your word in your people. Beyond an obligation, I pray that you would stir a hunger, a longing to hear and heed the words of the living God, do a great work in us. I pray that you would free folks who have maybe lived under the expectation of something a parent spoke over them. And that's how they're measuring life or avoiding a certain heartache repeating itself. And that's how they're measuring life. I pray that they would find joy and delight and freedom in what you have spoken over them. So do a work in your people, we pray, even now, in Jesus' name, amen.